Ansel Adams once said, you don't take a photograph, you make it. That's exactly what New York-based photographer and artist Darren Chumbly has been doing for 22 years. He's been capturing incredible moments, nature, people, and the world around him, and every single photo of his tells a story. Sometimes it's humor, sometimes it's beauty, but it's always a perfect moment in time that's captured forever. Visit picturedlc.com to learn more and to get to his Redbubble page where you can give these incredible moments as gifts in the forms of t-shirts, dresses, posters, tapestries, acrylic blocks, cards, prints, and more. That's picturedlc.com. To all who come to this happy podcast, welcome. Hi, I'm Scott Jacobs, and this is season two of The Mouse and Me. On the show, I'll chat with my pals who come from all walks of Disney life, including Imagineers, dancers, technicians, directors, musicians, and stuntmen, and Broadway friends who have worked on stage and behind the scenes. We'll talk attractions, shows, food, characters, tips and tricks for planning your trip and navigating the parks, and more. Now, put on your Mickey ears or your princess crown and enjoy season two of The Mouse and Me. Hello, Disney fans. Thanks for stopping by The Mouse and Me. In show business, a gypsy is a term of endearment and respect. A gypsy is a member of the chorus, the ensemble, the singers and dancers who travel from show to show, and today's guest was a true gypsy. He's danced all around the world, starting at Six Flags St. Louis and then Opryland USA for three years. From there, he danced for Disney in a travel trade show to promote Disney's MGM Studios, performing in 30 cities to get the word out to travel agents about the new theme park. He was then hired as a Kid of the Kingdom, where he danced in all of the castle shows in Magic Kingdom at Walt Disney World for five years. From there, he moved halfway around the world and danced at Tokyo Disneyland for four years, before coming back to the States to dance in the Radio City Christmas Spectacular in New York City. He then moved from land to sea, where he danced for Disney Cruise Line aboard both the Disney Magic and Wonder, and then went back to the Radio City Christmas Spectacular. He then retired from performing and went to Meredith Manor International Equestrian Center, taught there for a year, and moved back to Orlando, where he had an equestrian business for 13 years. He's now working his dream job at the Tri-Circle D Ranch, where he manages the operation of 40 ranch hands and over 100 equines. I'm so excited to chat with him today. Please welcome my pal, Bill Disbennett. There you are. Bill, how's it going? Great. Thank you. Oh my gosh, you make me sound so amazing. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you've done a lot of amazing things. So well, I appreciate it. You definitely listening to it like, wow, that's it's, it has been a lot. So it's been a great, great experience. Well, thank you for being here on this wonderful spring day, which is wreaking havoc on my allergies. So I thank you in advance for dealing with all of that junk. So how's the biking treating you? Your times and distance are getting better and better. Yes. Yes. Um, so I kind of, uh, getting back into biking and I'm really just trying to push myself because I think I have a competitive spirit, but mostly against myself. Um, and I've been really enjoying it. So yeah, I've been working at my times getting better and distance as well. 
So this is just to maintain a healthy lifestyle or is there something down the road that you're training for? Um, no, just really to get healthier in just 2023. I had some, um, close friends and my mom passed away and I was like, you know what? I just really want to focus on myself and being healthier and just getting in better shape. So that's, that's really been my motivation. Well, good for you. That's, that's awesome. Have you ever done the five borough bike tour in New York city? I have not done that, but I did ride in the diabetes bike ride here um, about 10 years ago, and I biked 114 miles. Um, oh, my. It actually was 102, but I did get lost, and I biked <laughs> an extra 12, but it was definitely an experience, and I'm really glad that I did it. So that does sound like a, an interesting to, to bike all the boroughs, but I don't know if I'd ever be able to make it happen but have you done it i did it like four or five times and you know all all the the traffic is shut down it's all for 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 the bikers i think it's like thirty thousand bikers and it's 40 miles and five boroughs and it's really really interesting and it's fun and it's a very neat way to see new york city that's awesome when i did live in new york uh my roommate and i we did bike around but i wasn't it was mostly just to kind of enjoy the day. We would bike through some of the different boroughs. But when does that happen? The five ride? It typically happens the first Sunday in May. That's like in another couple of weeks. Maybe I'll get up there. I know, right? Well, and, and you know, I, I know your pals with Billy Flanagan. You know, you, you should tag along with Billy and uh, help deliver Flanagrams. Yeah, absolutely. We could <laughs> do that. We could. I actually, the funny thing is I did do one. Uh, in honor of him, uh, we have dear friends that were mutual friends with Sheila and Terry and I was biking and they had messaged me and I thought, oh, I have to stop off at their house. So I stopped at their house and I did a uh, build to spend a gram. So uh, <laughs> quite as good as Billy's cause he's definitely, uh, the showman, but I, I did put in my best effort. Excellent. Excellent. Okay. So Bill. You had a really successful dancing and performing career before your second and current career. And I'm probably going to go out of order here as far as your timeline is concerned, but I'd like to at least start at the beginning. Was, was Six Flags your big first gig? Yeah, it, it was. And, you know, when growing up in St. Louis, that was like the first live shows I had seen that really made me fall in love with like dancing and performing and all of those things. But, and this may be where my competitiveness comes from too, because I started auditioning when I was uh, around 16 and I didn't make it. Well, I auditioned five times because um, sometimes they would have two auditions within the spring um, and would make it near the end or to the end and not get it. And I'd go home and and cry. And I think my parents were kind of like, um, I'm not sure if this is the path for you. And I'm like, no, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm going to do it, you know? And the next year after that, I had auditioned and I made it to the end and I made it. And of course, back then there weren't cell phones and I couldn't wait to drive home and burst through the door to tell my parents that, you know, I made it. And it felt like I was the star in a Broadway show. Like that's how huge it felt, the impact to me. So I think just the the perseverance and and the consistency of of trying to get in, um, and I, that's all I ever wanted to do. I thought I I would be working at Six Flags today if I had ne the next year um, had auditioned and actually didn't get rehired. 
which was a blessing in disguise because it made me open up my mind and eyes to like, well, now what? And so I started pursuing other places to work and that's where it kind of led me on my path. So I do look back and although it was my first professional job and I can tell you, I remember now too, I still have my paycheck stub. I made $180 a week and we did six shows a day, six days a week with one day off. Oh, <laughs> so wow. It was, it was a, a great experience for sure. After six flags, that was Opryland USA, right? Yes. And then um, went to Nashville and I was down there about three years or three seasons. And that was uh, seasonal. So in between, I had other local musicals. I did some things like that. But and then that was another just amazing place to work because they also have uh, offered dance classes and voice lessons and really help train your craft to be this top notch and everything was live all the vocals all the the music that orchestras in every show it was a true show park and it's it is a shame that it closed and is no longer there because it was such an amazing training ground for so many people so you mentioned you did six shows a day six days a week for six flags what was the show schedule like for opryland so i did a show called music 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 and it was in the Roy A. Cuff Theater, which is the theater that used to live right next door to the Grand Old Opry. So it was just outside of Opryland, the park. All the rest of the shows were in the park. So this show was an hour and a half long. So we actually only did two shows a day. We did a 2.30 show performance and a uh, 6 p.m. performance. And we did also work back six days a week. And uh, it was just amazing. It was just so much fun. And I just absolutely loved it. So I did that show two years. And then the the last year I ended up they they wrote in part of the show. Uh, Brenda Lee, the singer mm. came into the show. So it was music, music, music starring Brenda Lee. So she was in the show and it was wonderful to get to know her and work with her. And she was such a legend and still is. And I did that for the spring. And then I went into a brand new show called and the winner is, and there were two casts, a red cast, which started in the spring. And I was in the blue cast, which started through summer. And then we did same thing. I think we did four shows a day or three. And then on our long day, which was the other cast day off, we did four. So I think it was, we did three a day and then did four. And you have that pay stub? <laughs> you know, I don't think I do, but I wish I did. I, I wonder what, I can't remember what that was. So now talk to me about the Rockettes. I was finishing up at Tokyo Disneyland after my fourth year, the contract was about to end. And I had many friends um, from Disney prior when I was in Florida that were up there. And I ended up moving straight from Tokyo to New York City. So it was July 1st. And near the end of July is when they were having ensemble auditions. And uh, my roommate at the time kind of gave me like the talk of, you know, it's really hard in New York and I've been auditioning a lot and it's, it's really tough out there. And I was like, yeah, okay. You know, I was just so excited to be there. So I go to the audition and it, 
and there were several people there that I knew, which also made it a little more comfortable. But, you know, we danced all day and then I ended up making the callback for the next day. So I was like on cloud nine, like one of my first auditions. And here I'm getting my first callback. So I go back the next day and made it to the end, go home. And um, again, my my roommate was like, well, you know, don't get your hopes mm. up, so on and so forth. And then sure enough, about five days later, I got a phone call that I was cast in the show in the ensemble. And I was so excited and I couldn't believe it because there were probably, gosh, like 200, 250 men auditioning, you know, in New York City. And that cast and what I was cast in, they only took three new cast members that year. Wow. Because it was an AGVA contract. And with the that AGVA contract, they rehire 60% of the cast. So then they will have spots for new people, but they also would like the 40% that would be invited to the callback. Some of them, they would hire again, but that year there were only three of us. So I'd always felt very proud of that of like, gosh, there were like over 200 guys here. And I was one of three that got hired. So it was amazing. Did you audition on the stage at Radio City Music Hall or were the auditions held in the rehearsal studios upstairs? They were in the rehearsal studios upstairs at Radio City. Okay, okay. Now, a good friend of mine was a stage manager for the Radio City uh, Christmas Spectacular for years. And he gave us a backstage tour and told us this information, but I don't remember. How many casts were there? How many shows did you do a day? And how many Rockettes were in each performance? Um, so there's 36 Rockettes on the line. There are two casts. So one is gold cast and one is blue. So blue starts, um, the first, and then about a month later, they start the gold and we did the evening shows and blue did the day shows. And I think there were around, uh, I want to say there was about maybe 16 in the ensemble, eight guys, eight girls. And then we had the Rockettes have four swings, I believe. So they had 36 on the line and then like four, four swing girls that cover height wise. Like they called them a short swing or the tall swing. Cause they start the mm-hmm. tallest girls in the middle and out to the shortest. So I would say, you know, there's, then there was the ice skaters that were in the show um, and then several, there was a couple children in the show. So it's changed over the years as well. And how many shows uh, did you do a day? We did three to four shows. And then on their day off, we would do like five shows spread out more through the day. So that was a long day. And we had one day off a week. And how did your body hold up dancing on that stage? I know steel is not forgiving. That is so true. So <laughs> you definitely uh, start getting sore very early because the, it is steel and there's not any give to it. So I just remember every day going through the same routine. You know, I'd wake up, not get out of bed, but I would just start rolling my ankles, stretching my feet, pointing my toes, flexing my feet. Then I would, you know, pull my knees up and then I would lay to the sides to start stretching out my back and just literally almost uh, just section by section, waking up my body before ever stepping onto the floor. So it definitely uh, puts a toll on your body. 
Um, so all of those dancers, you know, they really go through a lot, but you just, you know, get up and you go and you, there's a few days that, okay, I'm going to have to take some Advil before I get started and, <laughs> and help. And, uh, but they have a lot of, uh, like physical therapists there, um, specialists that really help, you know, you can get massages and things like that. They really have come a long ways. Cause I've had friends that have worked there just not few, just a few years before ago. And, um, I've seen them post where they have like ice baths for them and some like a full-time staff that really assists all the dancers with their, um, bodies and their aches and pains. Did you live in the city? My first few years I lived in Astoria and then I would just jump on the N train and it would be right down in Midtown and oh gosh, like 20 minutes or so. And then the last year, because that's when I had kind of started equestrian school, I had left after my fourth year Radio City, went to, started school. Then when I came back, I subletted an apartment on the east side. It was on uh, like 56th, I think, between 1st and 2nd. Okay. Yeah. Nice. I lived in Manhattan the last part. What was the most challenging aspect of being in the Radio City Christmas Spectacular? What I mean, was it the stage? Um, I would definitely put that up there as far as as far as that. I think just the, you know, the the length of the show, it's pretty long and then just I would say like just being able to do the show over and over, but it's really just doing it over and over on your body. Like performing, you know, every time you go out there, it's a brand new audience and it's just as exciting as it was the time before. So it's not really that because that's enjoyable and that's why you're doing the job. I think it's just the um, the wear and tear on your body. Years ago, my daughter and I went up to the city. They were having auditions for Clara. She had a great audition. Uh, she didn't get it, but the Rockettes have always been in the back of her mind, and one of her goals is to be a Rockette. And I'm not saying it because she's my kid, but she really is incredibly talented, very, very gifted. And yeah. she she has the height, she has the sharpness, she has the technique. What advice do you have for any young ladies who want to be a Rockette and for guys who want to dance in the male chorus of that show? Well, I think the most important thing is all of the things you've already mentioned about your daughter, but I've had other people ask me and one is take ballet you because ballet is going to be just the technique and foundation of everything that you do. And the Rockettes, of course, are they're known for their tapping. So you have to be a extremely talented tap dancer, but just to keep taking class. And I know that they also offer many workshops way more than I think they've done in the past. So I, I follow them on Instagram and um, I have a friend that I danced with actually at Tokyo Disneyland. She teaches at a um, private school in Staten Island and they've got a dance team and her daughter is a senior and they just did a workshop in the rehearsal room. And I got to see her a few days ago here in Florida. And she was like, Bill, she's like being in the rehearsal room again with my daughter dancing with the Rockettes, doing this workshop. She's really so emotional and so and so such full circle. But I really the advice is just, you know, continue to take dance class. And if you have opportunities to get to New York and do any kind of workshop and learn everything and go see the show and just be very, um, you know, it's like with anything, it's it's educate yourself and make sure that you know what you're getting into. And if this is something that you want to do by 
you know, oh, this is what the Rockets, it's like precision. It's not about standing out. It's about how can you all move together as one. And same with with the men, you know, you, you have to be well-rounded, I think, as a performer, more so now than ever, like in the past, in the 30s and the 40s, you know, there used to be, you were a dancer or you were a singer. You know, I think with mm-hmm. any of the, the men that want to be in that show or any Broadway show as well, but taking every type of dance, you know, taking ballet, tap, jazz, but not only that, modern and lyrical and all of the things they, they offer now, you'll be amazed when things pop up that, oh, I have experience in that. And you go into these auditions and you're prepared for it. So I think just the preparedness and take voice lessons and sing and do all of those to make yourself marketable and hireable. For those of you who love all things Disney, check out the Mouse and Me podcast. Oh, wait, that's this podcast. Hi, I'm Scott Jacobs, the creator and host of The Mouse and Me. If you're listening for the first time, welcome. And if you're returning, welcome back. I created this podcast because I'm a curious person. I like to know the hows and whys behind things. I also know a lot of pretty cool Disney people who have amazing stories, and I wanted to hear and share those stories with you. The Mouse and Me is a one-man band. In addition to hosting the show, I'm the talent scout, researcher, writer, director, editor, and producer, and I'd love your support. If you feel so inclined, please visit patreon.com slash the mouse and me. There, you can make a one-time donation or set up a recurring payment in the amount of your choosing. Any monetary support would be greatly appreciated and will go towards recording and technology equipment, research and producing, maintaining and publicizing the podcast. Again, that's patreon.com slash the mouse and me. P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash the mouse and me. Be sure to follow the show on social media by searching the mouse and me. I post questions, pictures, and information about past, current, and upcoming guests. And I also do Fun Fact Friday because I love my fun facts. So definitely like, follow, and share. The Mouse and Me, a podcast for those who love all things Disney. This ad was brought to you by Shameless Plug Productions in association with the Mouse and Me podcast. And now back to the show. Now, you mentioned Tokyo Disneyland uh, a few times. Tell me about how you got involved with Disney in the first place. Oh, gosh. My love for Disney came when I was a child growing up in St. Louis. I remember in 1977, they had the new Mickey Mouse Club starting. So we all know back in the 50s, there was the, the Mickey Mouse Club. But 1977, they had what was called the new Mickey Mouse Club which only ran for one year. And then it started back up in 1989 with the all new Mickey Mouse Club. And that had, you know, Britney Spears and that whole crowd that we know of. But 1977, there was a girl selected from St. Louis. Her name was Julie Pekarski. And I have never met her, but I am still today one of the biggest fans. Anyway, she went to a Catholic girls school called Villa de Chen right down the street from the street I grew up on. And she took dance at Lollabaman Dance School. And she was all over the news in St. Louis because this new TV show was coming out and she was a local girl and all of this. So I started watching the Mickey Mouse Club when it came on. I learned every song, every dance, because each day was a different day. And in the opening, they would do, uh, you know, the who, what, why, where, when, and how day. That was like one day, <laughs> surprise day. And then the Friday was showtime day. And I used to take my video recorder, like tape recorder, and tape it off the TV back then and learn all the songs and dance around. 
So I used to think I'm going to be the next Mouseketeer because there were 12, but there were five boys and seven girls. And I thought, well, that didn't make sense to me. There sh- it should be even. So somehow they're going to find me and call me and hire me as a Mouseketeer. I really thought that. And I still laugh today about it because it was so real. I still have the album. I still have all the memorabilia from back then. I have the poster, everything. So anyway, that didn't happen. But as I continued performing and was now at like an Opryland, you know, I'm hearing where different people are. There was a guy that actually we went to high school together and we were in choir together um, named Carl. And he's actually good friends with Billy as well. And he came to Disney as a kid of the kingdom. And I was like, wow, that's so cool. So I had this, you know, love that someday I want to work there. While I was at Opryland, Tokyo Disneyland came through and did auditions. And I auditioned and made it to the very end. And in my head, I thought, oh, this is it. I'm going I'm gonna go to Japan. Didn't happen that way. Then when Opryland finished, I moved to Chicago with some other friends. And Disney came through again. And I went and auditioned. And it was kind of a general, it wasn't for one specific, you know, park or anything. And Ronnie Rodriguez, who does the hiring, was there. And I made it through the final callback. And George Kohler was the choreographer. He sees me in the hallway and he's like, Dispenit, what are you doing now? And I said, well, I'm taking class and, and taking voice lessons and doing some industrial shows. He's like, oh, what's your availability? And I said, oh, I'm, I'm available. Literally the next day, Disney called me and offered me to do the travel trade show to open MGM Studios. Nice. The very next day, they flew me to Orlando. So I left Chicago where it was negative a thousand degrees, freezing, (laughs) not leave. And it's February and I get to Orlando where it's like 75 degrees. And I didn't even realize there was a winter that was warm. I'd never experienced that. And uh, so we went to rehearsal. There were six dancers and five characters in the show. We rehearsed um, for a few weeks. And then we did a 30-city tour, um, basically, to open MGM Studios and uh, get the word out to all travel agents to help, you know, guests learn about it and book their trips. It was was amazing. That's so funny that you talked about the weather because I I had – the reverse experience. So I was born and raised in South Florida. And then we went to Chicago in the winter. There was some trade show going on. And so my sister and I went with my parents. We went to Chicago. The plane lands in Chicago. You know, you're somewhat protected getting off the plane and, you know, walking up the jetway and, you know, getting in in the transportation uh, uh, to get to the hotel. And so we get to the hotel and I get out of the van and I swear to you, it was like, <gasps> like it, it took my breath away and it hurt to breathe. Yeah. Yeah, it does. It's so cold. And my dad's like, oh, you have to put the scarf over your mouth. I'm like, you couldn't have told me that like two <laughs> minutes ago. Right. He, he, yeah. he was born and raised in New York, so he, he was used to he the knew. cold. But I swear, man, I have never experienced cold like I did that yeah. winter in Chicago. Like it is just not normal. Yeah. I remember being when living there. I had I can't even tell you how many layers on and same thing, scarf and hat. The wind was blowing so hard, it felt like I didn't even have a shirt on. 
Like I had so many, I was like, how is this go literally going right through me? So when I came to Orlando and I remember we stayed at the Enclave over off of International and I remember being outside with the other cast members. We're all kind of meeting each other. And in my head, I was like, I don't ever want to go back there again. <laughs> back to <laughs> And thank goodness it worked out because while we were on tour, uh, we were getting ready. They, they uh, flew us home for Easter break. We had a couple days off. And just before that, we had a meeting in the convention room. And at like two in the afternoon before the shows that evening, and we get in there and we got a call from casting and they actually spoke to each one of us and hired us for kids of the kingdom. And one guy was hired for the show over at Hollywood studios, but he was a New Yorker um, and just did that show and was going back to New York. So he declined, but the other five of us all went into kids of the kingdom. So when that contract ended on tour was right at the end, right when the studios open, which I, is it May 7th, I think, somewhere in there, uh, May 6th, 7th was their opening day. And then we started like two days later in Kids of the Kingdom. So I did fly back to Chicago, got the rest of my clothes, hopped on the plane, flew back to Orlando and started rehearsals for Kids of the Kingdom and never looked back. Did you perform at Disney's MGM Studios on opening day? Were, were you there at the park? No. So we were finishing up our last city. So all of us were together, our cast on tour. So we watched it on TV. And so the fun part of it is all of the people we then joined in Kids of the Kingdom, they had all been in the opening. So getting to hear all those stories or looking back over it and with them pointing out and you can see all of them, along with all of the world dancers that worked at Epcot. I mean, like every... Everyone that was a dancer anywhere on Disney property, I think, was in that opening. Wow. Now, now how big was the tour? Like, how, how big was the show itself? Was it like a, 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 a bus and truck uh, national tour? Um, yeah. So they we had a couple um, large semis that carried the stage and everything. So they were able to set up the stage, which was about like three or four feet off the ground. And it had uh, three projector screens up within some, uh, two, you know, stage right, stage left exit to be able to go backstage. Um, so it was pretty big. I Feet wise, I can't, I don't really know, but enough to hold six dancers and five characters on, on the stage all at once comfortably. Yeah. And we did 30 cities in three months. Um, we were treated like celebrities. Uh, it was really pretty cool. So we would land in some cities and we would get off the plane and then they would actually have us go while in the airport to a private room and we would get changed and we would go back and get onto the plane. We get bus back out to the same plane, go up the back stairs and we would come out because we were dressed as like Fred Astaire, Ginger Rogers type with our tuxedos, the girls with the blonde wigs. Um, and then Mickey and Minnie were in their tuxedo and dress. And we came out, we would walk through the airport like we just arrived in town. Um, oh, amazing. And, they, and that's been back when they had the Limouse zine. So <laughs> in some of the cities, they actually had it out in front. And the way they were able to stage it, we walked off the plane. Mickey and Minnie got onto the Limouse scene and drove off to the hotel. So cool. Yeah. How long were you a kid of the kingdom? Um, for five years. Wow. So I started in 89 
So February of 89 is when that tour started. And then May was in Kids of the Kingdom up until 94. And my I was offered another contract, but I had turned it down. So what was interesting is I took a risk and auditioned for Tokyo Disneyland. So basically back then things are, I'm not quite sure if they're the exact same or I'm pretty sure they're different, but you weren't able, if you were contracted it here in Walt Disney World, you weren't allowed to audition for Tokyo Disneyland because you were filling a spot here. And if they move you from there, they're just looking for someone to fill you here. So when our contracts rolled around a couple months prior, I spoke in my meeting and said, I really have a desire to work at Tokyo Disneyland. So I'm going to turn down this contract because that's really what I want to do. And they were like, okay, so come May, my contract was going to be ending. Well, say a month or so before is when they had the Tokyo audition. So I was eligible to go to the audition and auditioned here in Orlando with a bazillion people and uh, made it to the end. And then a few you know, weeks later, whatever it was, I got called and I got cast in a show called One Man's Dream, which played uh, at Tokyo Disneyland for quite a few years. Um, and I, again, was just, it was like the greatest feeling because I'd seen the show on video, never in person, and I couldn't believe that I was going to get to perform that show. And it really probably is one of my favorite shows I've ever been in. So... You had the auditions, you got hired for the show. Where did you rehearse? Did you rehearse in the States or did you rehearse in Tokyo? So when that contract ended in May, I actually went back to St. Louis and performed at the St. Louis Municipal Opera. And I did a couple shows there because we didn't leave for Japan until September. So went to Tokyo Disneyland. They So they flew us all to Los Angeles. We had a, another orientation there. And that's where we met the rest of the cast. So there were a few people from Walt Disney World and then a few people from Disneyland that made up this cast and we flew over and then we actually rehearsed in Japan in their rehearsal studios at the park and then opened the show about three weeks later. And now did they put you up in lodging or did you have to, uh, you know, get your own apartment, you know, pay for your own apartment? Yes. So they house you. So they had back when it first opened, they had what was called the American Village. And they had 20 houses and there were about three people to a house. You all had your own room, but that's where everyone lived. So they housed you and you got paid a per diem. And then you also got paid a salary. So your salary basically just went straight into the bank, which was a really great job to have. And then you could just live off of your per diem. Then when they built uh, Tokyo Disney Seas, they built, I think it's called the E-Village. It's their... uh, like studio apartments and it's a high rise because there's so many more performers there now that they've got the two parks going. Um, and then everyone lives, uh, in those. Okay. What perks did you have when you were working there at Tokyo Disneyland? Mm -hmm. Um, well, it's run a little bit different since it's owned by the Oriental land company. You weren't allowed to actually go into the park. You would have to buy a ticket to go into the park. Um, really? Yeah, it's just, it's, it is a little bit different. So I, we really, me and a couple of friends, I mean, I only went into the park, gosh, a handful of times, to be honest, cause it's very expensive, just like all the other parks to pay to get in. But mm-hmm. when I, my mom came to visit and we went in a few times and then 
I went with some other Japanese friends. So, I mean, I went, but not near as much as I would have if we could just walk right in. Now, when it came to the work, what were the major differences between Tokyo Disneyland and Walt Disney World? Well, Tokyo Disneyland, you know, it's a completely different culture being in Japan and the the people are different. So you have to, one, be very open-minded and they're, I, I love Japan. I love all the Japanese people, but they are very rule oriented and they follow the rules and they follow, follow all of the protocol of the way things work where in the States, it's definitely more relaxed and you know, like willy nilly kind of. So as an example, working in Japan, if I wanted to switch days off with another person that we did the same track. So say me and my friend, John, we're going to switch Monday for Tuesday. Um, And we did have two days off, but say we were just switching one day, you would have to fill out a form. I would have to sign it. John would have to sign it. Then we'd go to our stage managers. They would have to read it, approve it, sign it. Then it would have to go to the entertainment office and you would have to get like three other people's signatures before it ever got approved. Oh my. We're here. You can walk in and say, Hey, is it okay if John and I switch for Tuesday? And the stage manager says, sure, let me just change it on the schedule. Boom, done. You know, so it's, it's just from their, I think society of how they follow rules and how things go. It's not. So those things were a little more challenging, I would say, but I also respected it. That's the way they're, their culture is and their country. So I thought it was actually kind of cool in a way. What about the parks in general? Like the food, you know, Tokyo Disneyland compared to Walt Disney World, the rides and the entertainment. I would say, you know, Tokyo Disneyland is so clean. I tell people all the time, you could, you know, eat off the street. I mean, Mm -hmm. I wouldn't, but that's how clean it is. Because one, the Japanese uh, people are so proud of everything they do. So like, if you have like custodial or any cast member, they're going to keep everything pristine and just out of this world clean. Another thing, if you're in the park, you know, many times say compared to the U S or any of the parks here, you know, people are just everywhere. You know, they start a queue line and people are still everywhere. So say there was a kiosk selling like ice cream in Japan they start queuing up and lining up, not going straight across the sidewalk or the walkway. They go parallel to like the kiosk. So it's like it weaves back and forth. So they're like out of the way as opposed to coming straight out. And it's just just a different mentality. And so that was just really st- stood out to me when it was time, like an hour or so before the parade, when guests over there start finding their spot, they lay down a little blanket or a little mat and they have like their little area and it's very respected. No one walks across it. No one moves them. And then here, you know, people are crowding together and pushing and it's just different culture that way. Um, as far as entertainment, oh my gosh, their entertainment is just out of this world. And mostly because they have such repeat guests, you know, Japan, you know, is ultimately an island. So the, the, majority of their guests uh, come back over and over and over. So they're always changing and always updating. And they have a huge variety of, of shows and 
um, performers and different things that go on through the park. So, and they're, they're always changing their parades. So I think that is one thing that's different over here. They'll, you know, keep a show for 10 years or some shows never change where over there they're, they're always changing or always after a few years trying to update. Um, so I think that's a really great thing. Food wise, I would say they, they have the traditional American food in the park, um, kind of like we do here. Um, but then they'll have some different things as well. Uh, traditional, some Japanese options and things like that. How did the transition to Disney cruise line happen? So I had finished one of my contracts at Radio City and um, I got called by casting from Florida and it was um, Stacy View and said, hey, are you available? Because they actually had someone that was reconsidering taking the contract. And I said, yeah, I would love to. Well, I think they called me back the next day saying the person decided to stay. Great. No problem. The very next year, the identical thing happened. So I had an audition for the cruise line and hadn't worked for Disney for a few years. And she had called me again and it ended up working out that it was really that someone dropped out at the last minute and I was mm -hmm. able to be the replacement. So I had just finished Radio City. It was February and the contract was going to go all the way up till September. And I would go right back into Radio City again. I've said, that's perfect. So we flew to Toronto. I ended up being the dance captain with um, Andy Bristow. We were co-dance captains together. Um, and we were going to be what, so each cast, I don't know if you know this or not, but each cast on each ship is numbered. So the first on you know, magic one, magic two, magic mm, three. Mm. So we were swing one. So at the time, the magic and the wonder both did, they mirrored three and four day cruises. So at the time when a contract was finished, they would recast the whole thing, start rehearsals all over with a whole group. So they decided, why don't we hire a swing cast, another cast that can go on to the magic that cast takes their three-month break. They come back. Then we jump to the wonder. That cast takes their three-month break, comes mm. back. And the swing cast would take a three-month break and then keep rotating. Great idea in theory. So we started rehearsals and we were getting close to finishing rehearsals. And then Shoreside contacted um, the directors and everyone in uh, Toronto and we were, we were still going to go on and complete what we were doing, but they had just announced that come September, the magic was going to start seven day cruises. So the whole mm -hmm. swing concept went out the window as soon as it basically got started. So sure. we did the magic, uh, or I think we we're on the wonder first and then the magic. And then we got off and which was fine for me because I wasn't going back, but there, I think the idea um, was a good one. It just didn't really pan out the way they planned. Did you have to go through a separate traditions class just for Disney Cruise Line? Yes, they do have a different uh, class. And plus, since I wasn't an, uh, an employee anymore, um, I did have to go through traditions again. And I've been through traditions a few times. Do you have a favorite traditions class? Um, like did one stick out more than any of the others? 
Yeah. Um, the ones I taught because I actually ended up being a traditions facilitator in 2013, which I absolutely loved. So all of those classes were my favorite. But um, no, I think the first one always stands out because back in 1989, it traditions was three days. So you went three days to traditions learning about the, you know, the company, their traditions, their um, culture, every the way things are run, all of that. So I think that because you're just so excited and you literally have like goosebumps all day long. So you're like, oh my gosh, I can't believe this is happening. Now, did they cover the two finger point? Absolutely. Okay. So here's my question for you. Now, I know that pointing with one finger is considered rude. So you have a two finger point or an open hand gesture. There you go. You're hired. (laughs) There's, um, There's a rumor that it initially started because when Walt, Disney was in the parks and he, you know, he was a chain smoker. You know, he would have his cigarette in between his fingers. And when he would point, he had to point with two fingers. Otherwise, a cigarette would fall. So rumor has it that's where it started. And then Disney was trying to get away from the whole, you know, smoking thing. And they're like, oh, you know, it's more respectful in certain cultures. Is it a respect thing? Or is it a Walt Disney thing? Or is it a little bit of both? Well, I'll be honest with you. I've actually never heard that before, but it makes sense, doesn't it? Like it does, you know, so I don't know. I, I I would agree with you. I think maybe that's where it really came from. But I've I've heard that. I'm not sure what cultures it's rude to point. I, I don't know if I've ever heard what those are. Maybe I need to look those up. But it is something that we would teach in traditions because we would say the same thing. Right, right, right. What shows did you do on board the ships? Oh, uh, Disney Dreams, which I think may still be on some of the ships. Um, That was the finale. We did the Voyage of the Ghost Ship, which was a show written for the cruise line. Um, So it wasn't like a a take uh, from a movie or anything. And then also we did the Hercules show. Okay. So those were the three shows we did. Now, you've been involved with a lot of productions, but being in a show on a cruise ship is a lot different from doing a show on land. What were your favorite things about working on a Disney cruise ship? Oh, gosh. Um, Working as far as the shows in particular or just the whole experience? The whole experience. Yeah. Um, Well, it's definitely different because you're you're living at your job 24-7. So you're you're always there. It is definitely a different, it, it takes the right person to be able to work on cruise ships. And, um, but I would say if you're going to work on any, Disney's the one to work on. Um, I was very fortunate because we as performers got our own cabins and me as dance captain, I had the biggest cabin with a window and a window nice. outside was like a huge, like you would have thought I, I I don't know what was in a mansion or something, but uh, I think just the, you know, I think you're closer than a regular cast because you're all living together. So I think the the connections on stage are more genuine and, and feel different. And I think that really shows to the audience when they're watching. I think they have a, a different kind of a connection to the performers because of the way they perform. Um, it's, it's, it's pretty special. Now, when your performing career ended, that wasn't the end of you working for Disney. 
Can you tell the listeners what you do now and what the impetus for the career change was? And we're out of time for today, but Bill will be back next week where he talks about his career change at Walt Disney World, his favorite space-themed ride, why Slinky Dog Dash is his favorite ride of all time, the Tricircle D Ranch at Disney's Fort Wilderness Resort, and so much more. Please subscribe to the show, rate it, leave a review, and follow me on social media by searching The Mouse and Me. Thanks for listening, everyone. I hope you have the best day ever, and see you real soon. Thank you.